0: Hallelujah. What a savior. He is risen, church. He is risen if you have your copy of God's word, would you please turn with me to Hebrews chapter 10? This morning we are going to look at that glorious Savior. Once for all sacrificed for us. The text this morning will be the first 25 verses of Hebrews. Chapter 10, I'll read and if you'll follow along, remember please that these are the words of the Lord. For the law, since it has only a shadow of the good things to come, and not the very form of things, can never, by the same sacrifices which they continually offer year by year, Make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they have not ceased to be offered? Because the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have consciousness of sins. But in those sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins year by year. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins." Therefore, when he comes into the world, he says, Sacrifice and offering you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin you have not taken pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come. In the scroll of the book it is written of me to do your will, O God. After saying above, Sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin... You have not desired, nor have you taken pleasure in them, which are offered according to the law. Then he said, Behold, I have come to do your will. He takes away the first in order to establish the second. By this will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And every priest stands daily ministering and offering Time after time the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But He, that is Christ, having offered one sacrifice for sins for all time, sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until His enemies are put as a footstool for His feet. For by one offering He is perfected for all time those who are being sanctified." And the Holy Spirit also testifies to us. For after saying, This is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, says the Lord, I will put my law upon their heart, and on their mind I will write them. He then says, And their sins and their lawless deeds I will remember no more. Now where there is forgiveness of these things, there is no longer any offering for sin. Therefore, brothers... Since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which He inaugurated for us through the veil that is His flesh, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a sincere heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for He who has promised, is faithful. And let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds, not forsaking our own assembling together, as this is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Thus far is the reading of God's Word. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. and As you're seated, as we often do, we will ask the Lord's blessing on our time this morning. Father, we come here this morning in need of one thing, and that is Jesus Christ. We need to see the risen Savior reigning and ruling over all of creation. And remember that He, above all other things, is supreme. By the power of your Holy Spirit, would you help us to do that this morning? In Jesus' name, amen. Well, church, in the summer of 2008, I was serving in what is probably the most loathed position in church leadership that is, an interim youth pastor. <laughs> and while in that position, I took a group of teenagers from a rural church in South Knoxville to an even more rural retreat center in Inglewood, Tennessee. Camp Livingstone's was the name. And as far as Christian camps go, this place had it all. Climbing wall, ropes course, hiking, sand volleyball, disc golf. While we were there, we did construction projects in the community. We helped the camp frame their sanctuary. We went on a caving trip. That was back before safety standards stole a little more joy from the stockings of children's hearts. I mean, what fun is summer camp without a trip to the ER, right? All that stuff took youth ministry down one more level in Dante's Inferno of family discipleship abdication time, I think. At the conclusion of our six-day escapade, we hiked up a mountain, watched the sunset. No, we did not sing Kumbaya. And I asked the youth and the adults present this question. With all the fun that you had this week, and all the busyness, and all the going, And building and playing, did you miss Christ? Typical youth group ministry, right? Loads of fun, light on Jesus. This morning, as we turn our eyes to the Word of God, hoping to catch a glimpse of the King of Kings, the one whom we have all been talking about when we say to one another, He is risen, He is risen indeed, I ask you the same question this morning, church. Have you missed Jesus? Many of you have testified to the uniqueness of this congregation, the supernatural fellowship that you experience here, the encouragement you feel from a church that has a passionate mission for the city and the county. You've even closed up the breaches in the wall around your marriage and parenting and are grasping with new understanding God's mission for your family and for building His kingdom. But I ask you, are you missing Christ? We can all remember over the last year the trials of various kinds, the sicknesses, the surgeries, the slander of being called a cult church. Have these things caused you to lose sight of He who controls all things? The writer of Hebrews was asking his audience a very similar question. Faced with mounting persecution and a growing interest in secondary matters, he goes through in the book of Hebrews, angels, Moses, Melchizedek, the law. These early Christians had begun to undervalue King Jesus and his priceless gospel and were contemplating going back to what they had always known. In their case, it was the Old Covenant. In the flurry of activity brought about by the hand of divine providence, they had lost sight of Christ, had forgotten that their efforts, though good and necessary, were not the end, but the means. They were the preparations for the great wedding celebration at the marriage supper of the Lamb of God, what Tolkien called the final eucatastrophe of history. Of these Hebrews... Calvin said, They did not yet as clearly understand the end, the effect, and the advantages of Christ's coming. But being taken up with trials and secondary matters, they laid hold on a shadow instead of the substance. They had missed Christ. And I ask you this morning, have you? The 10th chapter of Hebrews is so packed with meaning, and I'll say up front that we will not have time to deal with every single verse and everything that it entails. But landing here in chapter 10, you can already see what was in the mind of these early Christians surpassing the superiority of Jesus, and that's the Old Covenant law, the law of Moses. Because of their background in Judaism and their understanding of the Messiah's coming kingdom, this persecution of the church that they were seeing around them didn't make sense. So let's just go back to the old ways. They worked all right. They were on the verge of exchanging what you see in verse 1 is the shadow for what was given them in the gospel. And that was the true realities. Calling the Pentateuch a shadow isn't demotional. It's definitional. The law is the silhouette Not the image itself. It prefigures. It is not, as this verse tells us, the form. The law is the shadow. The substance belongs to Jesus Christ. How can this be? You see at the end of verse 1, we're given at least one way. And that is because the law can never, mark that word, never make perfect those who draw near to God to worship. Consider never, never at all, not even at any time, denying the absolute and objectively forever the possibility of any affirmation. To think that the law of God will ever make anyone perfect is an absurdity. Perhaps we need to stop here, tap the brakes a little bit. There could be someone here who needed to hear that this morning. What this lost and rebellious world needs is, and some Reformed Christians might be tempted to say, the law of God. What this lost and rebellious generation needs is God's law. I understand why some people say this. And we in the Reformed Christendom camp value all of God's word. We are ashamed of none of it. We want all of Christ for all of life. But God knew that the entire globe was covered in the blood guilt of sin. And as one pastor said, blood guilt requires a blood gospel. We aren't celebrating Easter today because God gave Moses the law. And on the third day, out of the depths of the Ark of the Covenant, Aaron brought out the Ten Commandments. It's almost blasphemous to say, isn't it? No, not at all. There was one man who came out of the grave, and that man was God. And he had defeated sin and death, and now holds the keys of death and Hades, and rules this universe, and his offer of salvation for all men is still open to this day. If God was telling any other story, if one other thing in all of history was central, if there was another way, he would have said so. And that's the exact point the writer of Hebrews is here making. Otherwise, verse 2 says, would they, the sacrifices of the old covenant, not have ceased to altogether be offered? Because the worshipers consider this having been cleansed by those sacrifices, would no longer have consciousness of sins. If the law had made men perfect, even the consciousness of sin would not remain. Instead, he says the law functions not as a removal, but a reminder. Year after year after year. Our world is covered in blood guilt. And the law does not save, it condemns. The law take away sins, that's impossible. Could we at Christ the King let this issue, or any other for that matter, eclipse the glory of the risen King Jesus in our minds? Satan has been playing his 4D chess on us for years now. Get lukewarm, downy soft churches to pound the pulpit and say over and over again, the only thing that matters is the gospel. The wave of the gospel-centered movement, which historically has given its allegiance first, not to the gospel, but to the culture, and then to the state, and has avoided or even omitted portions of God's word, revealing its hireling status, has so incensed people like us. And our sinful reaction will be at the mention of the word gospel to cringe a little bit. And the devil says, checkmate. By so doing, he moves churches like ours away from a worldwide son of God monarchy to becoming a republic of theonomy, which can never save. The gospel-centered folks melt into what Votie calls the moralistic, therapeutic deism, and we both miss Christ. My purpose here is not to pit Jesus Christ against the law of God, as if they were in some way opposed. My point is that we should never mistake shadows for realities. Will Templeton wore a shirt to prayer meeting Wednesday night that said, The goat, the greatest of all time, is the Lamb. I know that's a moniker, and it sounds like a little Christianese, but it's so true. And that's exactly what the writer of Hebrews wants for us. He wants that to be our ever-present reality in the lives of the followers of Jesus. Nothing is better than Christ. Nothing is greater. Nothing is more supreme. So I ask you, church, have you been missing Christ? Why have you been missing Christ? Is your thing the law of God right now? Or is it another theological issue? Is it eschatology? Is it the cessation of the charismatic gifts? Women covering their heads? Christian nationalism? Patriarchy? These are all good topics. My question is, are they central? What's directing you from King Jesus right now? Is it some serious financial trouble? That home deal that just won't go through? your kids growing up and leaving the house, your chronic health issue, the disobedient and wayward adult child, all problems that need a solution. Brothers, does your ability to protect your family trump your pursuit of Christ? Sisters, do your insecurities about your husband's opinion of your body consume time that should be devoted to Jesus? Jesus said, in this world you will have tribulation. And none of that tribulation is going to overcome the world. But he said, take heart. I have overcome the world. Where is Jesus Christ this morning, brothers and sisters? Where is he in your thoughts, in your conversation with other saints here? Where is he producing a steady joy that is radiant on your face? Where is he in rooting out that bitterness in your marriage? Or helping you put down that lust that you keep running back to? Many of you are going to hear this, and your mind will immediately jump to, well, I guess I've got to up my at mentions of Jesus in Slack. Or at the fellowship meal. I better start posting Bible verses more often. Got to hit that evangelism outing soon, and make sure that I'm saying stuff about Jesus. And I want to say what the writer of Hebrews says. No, stop. It cannot save you. It cannot bring the joy that only Christ supplies. Your law keeping will never make you perfect in the eyes of God. Adding in more Jesus isn't the answer, especially when your hands are already full of so much else. Christ is either all or he's nothing. He must be the captain. He will not be the crew. He's the only legal driver. He won't sit in the passenger seat. Oh, saints at Christ the King, what do you need to repent of this morning and let go of today so that you will stop missing Christ? The rest of this message is intended to help you see again His great supremacy in all things. But first, I want to speak to a lost person in here. Lost person, I want to let you in on a church secret, a little behind the scenes. Most churches in America today plan Easter, the day when Christians are supposed to be worshiping the risen Savior, around the lost person. That's right. The one who has no relationship with God. The one who is in rebellion to Him, hating both His law and His Messiah. All over America today, the worship service of God Almighty, will be planned just for the lost. Churches weeks ago started their Easter marketing campaigns. They set up that Easter landing page on the website, created the Easter hashtag, put up silly banners that say things like Easter impact, flood of life. It's so ridiculous when you think about it. They'll invite secular bands that draw a crowd and have pastors acting like showmen rappelling down to the pulpit. They'll host massive egg hunts costing in the tens of thousands of dollars. All for people who are outside the family of God. I'm sure in some ways that sounds really kind. But we refuse to do that not because we at Christ the King are in any way superior. We are not superior Christians, but principally we refuse to gear our services around the lost because what happens here has 0% to do with what the lost or the saved want. We are here this week and every week because the Father demands the worship of His creatures. But lost person, let me say something very, very good for you this morning. Even though this worship service wasn't planned around you, hear this mercy from God. You are here in this auditorium today listening to a sermon that is meant to feed the sheep of Christ. And you get to hear about the impossibility of your works to save you. Any works. You don't want to go the animal sacrifice route like they did. How about the, I spoke nicely to my spouse this last week, Root. I gave money to a charity recently. I'm trying to kick that cussing habit. (laughs) What about the, I showed up today to church on Easter, Root, when you never show up any other time of the year. So you know your efforts at perfection in God's eyes are pretty shoddy, do you? Do you pacify that concern with the fancy that God finds these attempts humorous, that he understands you? Like a small child's attempts to put back together the broken vase after it's fallen, God is not laughing. He does not laugh. Well, he does. He laughs at the wild and crazy antics of the nation seeking to overthrow the rule of his son, see Psalm 2. God does not laugh at your good works, lost person. The Bible says he abhors them. Isaiah tells us that he looks on them like the dirtiest thing you could imagine, like used menstrual fabric. This is because Christianity is not a due religion. It is a done religion. All the good works needed for our salvation were done in the person and work of Jesus Christ. All that remains for us as his creatures to do, is that we bow in submission to His Lordship, accepting that His works and His works alone are enough on our behalf. Hear this, lost person. If you don't turn from your own attempts to make amends to God and completely submit to the kingship of the risen Christ, you not only walk away in rebellion to God, but a little bit harder of heart and with a greater measure of judgment on your shoulders after this morning. If you leave here today in continued rejection of the salvation offered to you by the atonement of Christ on the cross, the one that we sang about many, many times this morning, you are laying the brickwork of your own Roman road to hell. But today, in this moment, by the power of God, in the work of the Holy Spirit, you can turn away from all of these vain attempts to polish your hopeless situation and submit to King Jesus. And if you do, The Bible promises us, you get Christ. And with Christ, every other blessing in the heavenly places. So how is Christ supreme? How could we possibly miss this Jesus? All the distractions, all the trials, all the hard providences that tend to take our eyes off of what is done often stir up that fleshy desire in us to want, To do, to offer again some sacrifice that will restore to us his promised pleasure only in Jesus. In verses 5 through 18, the author puts the Christian's do up against Christ's done, and it is a joke. He quotes King David from Psalm 40 in the Septuagint translation, who said a very strange thing. He said, God does not desire. Sacrifices and offerings You might think Well I thought that's all God cared about in the Old Testament Isn't that what the whole sacrificial system was about? Sinful people making sacrifices to God to appease Him There are numerous examples of sacrifices pleasing God in the Old Testament I don't have time to go into any right now But I'll say this It is a tendency of fallen humanity to take what was meant to please God and then use it to try and propitiate God. And that's not going to fly. Imagine for a moment a man caught in the act of murder. He is apprehended and taken before a judge for sentence. Remarkably, he pleads no contest and expresses contrition for what he has done. He offers to make some kind of restitution to the family of the one Whose life he stole Or perhaps he says I'll do community service I'll go into rehab I'll pay fines Whatever you can imagine The sacrifices that he's willing to make Show contrition But it's ludicrous to assume That these offerings Will actually pay for the crime that was done If the judge were to accept the plea bargain He would most certainly be a wicked judge because justice demands that there be according punishment. Don't forget our context. Verse 4 it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Nothing we could ever do will ever replace what Christ has done. And this is where the writer of Hebrews shows us the absolute supremacy of Jesus in all things. In verse 5 sacrifice and offering you have not desired but a body you have prepared for me. Again, quoting Psalm 40 as coming not from David, but from the mouth of Jesus himself, we read in verse 9, Behold, I have come to do your will. So what was God's will? That the bride he chose for his son be saved out of the midst of her own whoredom, set free from her slavery to sin, be ransomed from her captivity to the serpent, that a perfect sacrifice be made, that a body be offered for her body, one time for all time. This was always God's intention. This was His great plan from the beginning. This was His will, that the seed of the woman would come forth, and through this sacrifice of his own body, crushed the skull of the serpent. Look at verse 10. Through this will, we are sanctified. Through the body of Jesus. And here's the best part. One time for all time. One time for all time for all of his bride. Compare that to the old sacrificial system, year after year, after year, reminder, after reminder, after reminder. Verse 11 doubles down. Priests coming again and again, making sacrifices, which can never take away sins. When Christ gave his life for us on the cross of Calvary, one and done. His work was so finished that he sat down picturing his, the completion of his work at the right hand of God. As a man, many of you know it feels very, very good to come home after hours of hard work and find that chair which symbolizes your doneness for the day. I put out about 25 yards of mulch in a day before, and the thing that I'm most looking forward to is coming home and resting from my labor. Nice meal, reading time with the kids, because the work is all finished. I put a new covering over the job site The place looks beautiful I've earned the reward This is Christ seated at the right hand of God Our children woke up this morning To the song His Heart Beats By Andrew Peterson My favorite lyric in the song Is all about this theme of resting He rises, Andy says And his work is already done So he's resting as he rises to reclaim the bride that he won. Brothers and sisters, this is what is so insane about ever running back to our to-dos. When Jesus has already said, it is finished. Christianity is truly a done religion. All other religions of the world do this, do that. But when that dying body on that cross on the outskirts of Jerusalem said, finished, Our redemption was forever secured. And we were, if you're able to grasp this, verse 14 says, perfected for all time, even though we're still being sanctified. No, we don't see ourselves as perfected. We are still, as the text says, being sanctified, further set apart, further cleansed, Further, holified, if you'll allow me to verbify a noun. But because of the work of Christ for your sin and mine, while in mortal time we are still being more conformed to the image of Jesus, yet in the eternal realm, in the heavenly places, we are already seated with Jesus and we're perfect. And it gets even better than that. Christ's death and resurrection wasn't just a final sacrificial system, but it became a final and everlasting covenant. This is the new covenant, the one in which God would put, as verse 16 says, his laws upon our hearts and on our minds, he would write them. Notice these are punctiliar events. He doesn't promise to go on writing. His laws upon His people's hearts. He does it. He promises it and He accomplishes it in our salvation. In the same way, He will remember no more our sins and our lawless deeds. That's it. Punctilier, It is over. They are gone. As far as the east is from the west. In the old covenant, the sacrifices of animals were a reminder of sins year after year. But in the new covenant, the singular sacrifice of the perfect Paschal Lamb erases the memory of sin. No more remembering. No, no, it's not as though God has forgotten, you might say. He lost something in his mind as if he who knows all things could actually lack knowledge. But your sin in mind was so identified with Christ, he became sin who knew no sin, that God does no longer see it as ours, but being fully, what does the Bible say? Laid on Him. In Him, that is Christ, we become the righteousness of God in Christ. It almost sounds blasphemous to say, but church, this is our gospel. What is better than King Jesus? Can anything supplant the beauty and glory Of this incomprehensibly good gospel Who can separate you From the love of Christ The answer to these three questions is the same Nothing In all of creation These Hebrews accepted the gospel of Jesus They got zealous for spreading his kingdom And then the trials came And they forgot about him Considered going back to The old to do method Hear this, church. Nothing that you omit to do or commit to do can undo the work of God for you through the Lamb of God on the cross of Calvary. No sin that is right now clinging to you will be able to ultimately remove the blood of that God applied to you at the cross. No kingdom-building adventure will ever merit your citizenship in heaven. No failure at striving for righteousness will ever take away your place at the table of God's family. No child who hardens their heart against grace can rob the promise of God that grace will forever abide in the Christian home. No secondary matter you become fully convinced of in your own mind will ever save the world from its path to destruction or supplant the primacy of the gospel of Jesus. No trial you face is not, at every moment, remembered by and interceded for by King Jesus. And no enemy opposing your profession of Jesus Christ as Lord can resist one day becoming a footstool for His feet. Jesus Himself gives us the answer In Revelation chapter 1, he would say, I think to the Hebrews, do not fear. I am the first and the last and the living one. I was dead. And behold, I am alive forever and ever. And I have the keys of death and Hades. This one king, church, He is the center of everything. No matter what God has in front of you right now, the substance belongs to the Lamb. Don't miss Him. Now to conclude these arguments, the writer of Hebrews sums up all that he said in the first 10 chapters. He says, since that blood of Jesus gives you such a confidence to enter not into a temple made by hands, but into the very throne room of heaven itself, verse 19. Since you enter through a new and living way, that is, through a body that was offered one time for all time, the true temple veil that was rent for us, since that God-man lives forever as an ever-interceding great high priest for us. In other words, since Christ is in every way superior to even the best we could do to draw near to God. Where do we go from here? What are our marching orders for a Christ-exalting, vigorous effort to ready the world for the return of the King? How do we keep ourselves from missing Christ? Three divinely inspired commands. First, he says, come. He says, come, in verse 22, draw near to the Father through the Son by the power of the Holy Spirit. In response to the revelation and recognition and reverence for this glorious King Jesus, we are commanded, draw near. Further up, further in, as the Narnian saying goes, pursue Christ, abide in Christ, Seek to know better this high priest who has saved your soul from the wrath of God. Seek to plumb the depths of his great gospel by which we were saved. Do this with a sincere heart, the author says. Repent of what is causing you to miss Jesus. Put aside all other things that have become supreme. Do this with full assurance of faith. Where does that come from? It comes from plumbing the depths of the gospel of grace. Remembering the sturdiness of the work of Christ on our behalf Do this with a heart sprinkled clean of an evil conscience As you experience the remaining corruption of your flesh And your heart chooses to honor the wiles of the old man And that guilt comes in again And brings you down in the dust of lament Don't run to do But run to what has been done Apply the blood of Christ to your musty life. Spurgeon always said, I have a great need for Christ, and I have a great Christ for my need. If you haven't been baptized as a means of appealing to God for a clean conscience, the writer here says, do so. Let your body be washed with the pure waters of baptism. In essence, come by the blood. Come by the blood and on no other grounds. Lay aside all other distractions and come to Christ. And then the second thing that he tells us to do is hold fast. Hold on. Don't let go. The confession of our hope. This faith that we profess, we must together, corporately, as a church, never stop proclaiming it. Nothing should wrench the hope of all that we confess out of our mouths. Matthew Henry said, Our spiritual enemies will do what they can to wrest our faith, hope, and holiness, comfort, all out of our hands. But we must hold fast our religion as our best treasure. Satan has his subtle ways of trying to take your hope from you. And as I mentioned earlier, sometimes he uses the church. Over the last three years in particular... We have seen swaths of churches abandon this or that part of the Bible. The reasoning is usually, what the world needs is a mere Christianity. Let's leave all of the fluff, the divisive topics, the denominational stuff, the things that divide us. Let's just preach Christ. <clears throat> Again, <clears throat> here is another one of those things that sounds really good rolling off the tongue. But at the heart of this is a fundamental mistake. If Jesus indeed died for the sins of the world, and he did. And if that Jesus raised himself to life after three days of death, and he did. And if that Jesus ascended to the right hand of the Father, as he did. Then that Jesus isn't interested in our suggesting to one another what we're supposed to teach and not teach. He said in his great commission to disciple the nations and teach them to obey all that he commanded. Refusing to teach the whole Bible is actually the rejection of the Lordship of Jesus Christ. Church, nothing should ever take the place of primacy of the gospel in our message And nothing will show that we have begun to reject the Lord of the gospel than our rejection of even the smallest part of His Word. Lastly, the author of Hebrews encourages us, stick together. We are instructed to devote ourselves to one another in the regular meeting together on Sundays and at other times throughout the week for the sake of mutual encouragement. Those who only come to church on Easter and Christmas have no legitimate claim to Christ. Let me say that again. Those who only come to church on Easter and Christmas have no legitimate claim to Christ. If you love Christ, the Bible says that you will love His family. That's plain and simple. So Chris, you're saying that if I don't go to church, I'm going to hell? No. I'm saying that people who avoid the regular assembly of God's people don't love God's people, and therefore they don't love God, have not been saved, and are going to hell. Repent of your sinful avoidance of the worship of God with God's people, becoming a covenant member of a local church, and cease missing Christ in the very assembly that He called us to witness Him. For those of you who attend church each week, there's something in these verses for you as well. At Christ the King, we tell folks that God commands their attendance and commitment to His local church, and I'm very glad for that. I think we're also pretty good at encouragement towards the practical outworkings of love and good works mentioned in verse 24. I've experienced the blessing of fellow members encouraging me to be a man or be courageous or brave or do this or that. But are we pointing one another to this great Christ risen From the dead. We wait for this morning all year long. We wait for the moment when we get here and we can say, He is risen, and have the one you're speaking to respond, He is risen indeed. Is that the only time this year that Christ has come off your tongue on a Sunday morning? Let Christ be regularly on your mind and loosed freely from your tongue when we are together. It is likely that we will miss him less as we speak of him more to one another. I conclude this morning's message with a familiar exhortation from the very author of Hebrews, just a few chapters away. This is the wisdom of the very word of God directing our storm-tossed and distracted minds where at Easter and all times they ought to be. Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, laying aside every weight and the sin which so easily entangles us, let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, setting our eyes not on the race, but on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before Him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is now seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider not your trials, not your good deeds, but Him who has endured such hostility by sinners against Himself. Why? So that in moments of weariness, we might not grow weary or faint in our hearts. Church, this is our marching orders These are our commands from God Set our eyes on Christ and look nowhere else Because He alone is risen He is risen indeed Let's pray Father, we thank You For the supremacy of Christ in all things We thank You that Jesus is our Head He is Lord and none other Please let that reality be true in our lives. We pray these things in the name of Jesus, our King and our Savior. Amen. As we always do.